Before I tell you about Thomas, I want to speak for a second about the upcoming Tax Day March. This will actually be the first march that I have taken part in individually. I did not attend the Women's March, although I did think it was valuable, but I wasn't able to go. And I am going to be going to the Tax Day March. It's on April 15th. Uh, the Seattle one meets downtown on 2nd Avenue. And the reason I love the idea of the Tax Day March is that it has a concrete goal in mind to put pressure on Donald Trump to release his tax returns. Even if he never does that, it shows that people care about that. Perhaps we can get a law in place that requires major presidential candidates to release their tax returns. Perhaps we can get enough pressure for him to actually do it. And if we do, then we will know if there are any ties to businesses and other nations that are problematic for American national security. Transparency is a good thing. Uh, it's possible he releases them and there are no red flags. That would be actually the best case scenario. This is not about deposing Trump or defeating him. This is about transparency and clarity. Because if our president has someone that has got something on him, that's not good for anybody. And, you know, he might not want to release them for a number of reasons, but he ran for president of the United States, and I believe that he should release them. So, I don't normally do activism on this show. Uh, you all can tell why I don't do that, why I am a suspect of it. But in this case, this one seems very reasonable to me. It seems nonpartisan. I don't think that any Republican has a good reason to be against this, as far as I can tell. So, if you have a tax day march in your city, I encourage you to go. If you come to Seattle, you can find me and say hello. And uh, I think that's all I've got to say about that. There's no other way to say this. I am a Thomas Morton fanboy. I love him. I think his work on Vice News, but especially his work on his own show, Balls Deep. Yes, that is the actual title of the show, where he embeds himself in all kinds of different groups of people and then does 30-minute episodes of him kind of living their life and helping them with what they're doing and trying to understand them and profiling them. I think the show is amazing. It's like, it is honestly one of the best examples of empathy in television making that I've ever seen. And I can't recommend it highly enough. A little background on who Thomas is and how I came across him. Obviously, I know him because of his work on Vice News. That's where I initially saw him. He's been at Vice for 13 years since he got out of college. Started as an intern, then an editorial assistant, then an assistant editor, then the web editor. And then he began hosting and producing his own video pieces. And now he is a correspondent for Vice News and has his show, Balls Deep. And he's working on some other stuff, which he'll mention to you. Um, he's in his mid-30s. He lives in New York. He's a colorful guy, and he's got stories and a lot of great insight. So I hope you enjoy this. So I'd like to start by talking about Vice itself, Vice News, and the television network, and then move on more specifically to your own show, Balls Deep, which I love. So first off, kind of a standard question that will nonetheless set the stage for us. How did you end up working as a reporter for Vice News? You can start as far back as you want. Um, I was in college in uh, 2004, 
and um, I was, was I had a scholarship that required me to study abroad, so I was in Prague for half a year, and I was trying to figure out a way when I got back to the states to stick around New York instead of like uh, I'm from Atlanta instead of going back down there to the suburbs and working at like the Napa Auto Parts Warehouse. Yeah. And uh, Vice was my favorite magazine by far. I was absolutely enamored of them and the writing voice, and I wrote them essentially a fan letter with a resume attached that my then-girlfriend, future ex-wife, described as quasi-racist against Koreans, and um, (laughs) shot it off into the blue, and uh, they invited me to come intern for the summer, and it snowballed from there. So... The the best way to get hired by Vice, at least back in the early 2000s, is to write quasi-racist but compelling fan letters. Yes. Okay. And you're the living proof. Yeah. So, I know for, that... For the record, I didn't consider it racist. It was okay. just, uh, I, I had worked with um, at a <laughs> Japanese steakhouse run by Koreans, and it was uh, it was just very true to life. It was... It was you know, Okay. All right. Well, I, you know, I don't believe that you're a racist, so I'll, I'll leave that to the side for now. This is, this um, is starting on a great foot. <laughs> yeah. We were <laughs> first claim about you, not racist. Not racist. Just so, so everyone knows. So I'm aware that Vice was a magazine before it was a news show on HBO, but we're just going to kind of skip those years uh, <laughs> okay. because I think that, um, well, just it, it just is much more in the mainstream now that, that it is a show. So... The first couple seasons of Vice News were remarkable for a number of reasons, but perhaps foremost is that like you guys certainly appeared, you and the other reporters, certainly appeared to be putting yourselves in more danger than the average reporter. Was that actually the case? I don't know. I'd have a hard time. There's obviously, you know, there's a kind of war correspondence for most of the major networks right. and... uh um, I've seen people, you know, do reporting while under fire, which has happened to me once um, and is something I will would never intentionally repeat again. I don't know. Um, to me, it never really occurred that we were putting ourselves in exceptional danger, but we were covering occasionally some hairy subjects and we did so in kind of a, you know, a looser way than our mainstream contemporaries um we certainly traveled a lot lighter than them and uh we were we were never we were never reckless in any way none of us are daredevils uh, or adrenaline well some of us might be adrenaline junkies i'm not i'm certainly not um so we're always cautious but we weren't uh i don't know we weren't nerds about it we didn't take security details um didn't wear stupid looking armor when we didn't have to and taking a security detail is like a nerdy choice. Well, there's, you know, depending on if you need one, I guess there's the difference between having, you know, having, if you're in, let's say, say you're in Syria, having a, you know, a local fixer and kind of minding, you know, what they have to say about the area and what's good or not good to do versus bringing, you know, four to five, like X, like special forces, private right. contract bodyguards which which some some channels do and which uh i don't think's always the best idea yeah uh have you seen that documentary now spoof episode uh like the oh, search yeah. for el chapo drones yes i have yeah dr- drones <laughs> with a z uh yeah. did that like what what sort of the attitude around the office is it like is that 
disrespectful or is it all in good fun? Um, uh, in, in the end, it's all in good fun. They did they did a really good job, um, like hitting our aesthetic. Like I was aesthetically ex- is amazing. Yeah, extraordinarily impressed by like their ability to mimic our camera work, the editing, all that. I saw that episode, I guess, in a sneak preview on a link with the idea that I was going to watch it and then interview Seth Meyers uh, by phone immediately, like fresh from having watched it. You know, I anticipated being like insulted or just like, you know, and I anticipated being parodied, but I didn't expect to see myself get shot in the face, Yeah, you know? And so I was like, I was genuinely jarred when I was making the phone call. I was just sort of like, do people want me to die? Like, <laughs> and I felt terrible because the whole interview was basically him consoling me. Oh no. Uh, and then, and then on top of that, he like, that was the one episode, like he, I think he, you know, he writes, probably like four fifths of them or contributes to it. And that was the one that like, uh, Armazin, um, and, uh, there was another writer who's, uh, he's credited and I can't remember his name right now, but yeah. Meyer hadn't even been involved in that episode. So it was just like, that was not a good interview. <laughs> Whew, not, one of, not one of my finer moments. I didn't take the fact that they get shot to be like commentary on what the rest of America wishes would happen to vice news reporters. I thought it was more like just sort of taking that, that uh, danger to an absurdist extreme where like at some point, like you, they just certainly would die. Like they, there's no way they would be able to finish the shoot. Yeah. Well, that's been the, that's been the grim chatter around the office for close to a decade. I feel like at this point, but thankfully nobody, nobody has. And those who've come close have been uh, very fortunate and uh, not yeah. being more injured than they have yeah but and uh for anybody who doesn't know we're talking about there's a show called documentary now it's like a you know mini episodes of spoof documentaries it's on netflix right now it's bill Hader and fred armerson and uh there's a one called drones with a z that parodies vice news so uh keeping on the topic of sort of like the vice offices and the kind of internal conversations is there a sense within vice that vice is kind of partisan or like left leaning, not necessarily Democrat, but like liberal and that that's perfectly okay. Or is there like a strong push from anybody to sort of be more centrist or is it just like, well, if the facts lead us to be liberal, we'll be liberal. You you know, like, can you kind of walk us through like, what's that internal conversation like? Sure. Um, there, there's not too much of a like an outright conversation about that. Um, the office is young. There's a lot of. Uh, we're certainly younger than a lot of uh, bigger, more established news agencies like yeah. uh, you know uh, ABC or CBS News. Yeah, I think people will kind of tend towards the more liberal side on a lot of arguments. Like since the magazine days, it's um, you know we've eschewed having any sort of like clear ideology. And I don't think like I don't I can't speak for everybody, but I don't think any. You know, too many of us have a very clear-cut ideology. I'm, you know, I, I find myself leaning left on a lot of things, but uh, I, d- I definitely don't. I, I certainly don't identify with the f- Democratic Party. Pardon for the swearing. And um, swearing is okay. Oh, good. And uh, yeah, and and I, I would never like. I, I don't self-identify as as liberal, despite you know, kind of looking the part. But, you know, the, the editorial dictum forever with uh, the magazine and which I try to carry forward in all the videos that I do is you kind of, you make what you're interested in, you know, and um, you address things as you would address them, like, 
in the bar with a friend you speak you know you speak conversationally very particular for me i like to kind of enter stories or approach stories that i don't know the conclusion to that i'm you know i like to like for instance when i do interviews i like to ask questions that i want to know the answer to versus you know i'm just kind of like fishing for a soundbite at least as far as i go i certainly don't start with any sort of ideology whether or not it ends up kind of gelling into something that is more to the left or to the right yeah interesting as it goes i also incidentally try and write interview questions that way as well i mean i don't there's nobody breathing down my neck to get a soundbite for my self-produced podcast. Uh, but I do try to, to figure out what is it about this person that like, I really wish I knew, or I, you know, what about what that they know about? Do I really wish I could know? And then just go from there. And I think that leads to like way better conversations than absolutely. Just trying to nail somebody down on like a policy position or sort of like get them on the record or whatever. I mean, that, the the more uh, news you read and whatnot, like the more just incredibly boring that those approaches become. Yeah, and there's so much. You, I find there's so much more about the reporter than they are about their subject. Like there's, um, you know, the classic uh, hallmark of the great reporter is to ask the tough questions. And there's some people who do a really great job with that, with putting people on the spot and getting, uh, you know, insight into things that somebody who, you know, beat around the bush or soft pedaled it wouldn't. But like nine times out of 10, it just seems like they ask the hard questions, but nobody responds to them. Like, you know, and all it comes is like, he's like, oh, wow, they really put it to him. They really asked him that question. But you don't, you know, you don't learn anything from that. You don't learn something when somebody walks off, takes their mic off and walks off set. Like, yeah more than you know you might have already known it's just um it, it seems a lot of that's about uh the vanity of uh the reporters more than it is about something that will you know generate any sort of like unique insight or you know further except uh, these days learning. in this kind of like post fact kind of trumpist world i mean i'm grateful for when jake tapper is willing to sort of hammer home or don lemon or somebody like who who will just like hammer a question until they get a response from Trump or Spicer or Kellyanne Conway or whatever. I mean, that kind of skill is, is becoming pretty valuable. I would say these yeah. days for a particular reason, they certainly aren't catching any uh, flies with honey in no. that administration. <laughs> no. Uh, so there's definitely a link between sort of like your on-screen persona when you were just on the vice episodes and then what became your show, Balls Deep. Let's just describe, like, how, how do you describe Balls Deep in a couple sentences to people? Balls Deep's at its basic. It's an attempt kind of documenting different groups and subcultures via immersion that tip just nine times, or no, always ends up just being basically a profile of an interesting representative person of said subculture. Or, of that group, yeah. yeah. So it's a show that's on Viceland, which is Vice's television channel and then i guess it's an app as well you need a cable subscription to watch a login yeah, yeah yeah okay and so balls deep like you you know examples of communities you have immersed yourself in like tent revivalist preachers trans women in new york ranchers in new mexico uh like nevada nevada right yep hank vogler who i think is gonna be on the podcast pretty soon um, is that right? Oh, yeah. cool. Yeah, he's agreed to it. I just need to get him on the schedule. So Say hey. 
Yeah. But so like, for instance, Hank, the yeah. rancher in Nevada, you, you know, tugboat drivers, uh-huh. um, high school kids moving toward their final dance last of the of year. Yeah. yeah. Last week of school. So all these different groups of people, you embed yourself with them and both on that show and on vice, you sort of like lean into, I, I would maybe call it like a, a very slight caricature of yourself. Whereas you are very okay with being the kind of like short skinny guy with glasses, the quirky guy, like the, the nerd, like in the best way. I think it, I think it kind of disarms people and opens them up to you and gives you this kind of unique access because of that. Like, can you talk about that a little bit? Like when you learned to do that or. It always kind of flatters me to hear it described as a persona and as something I'm enacting. Cause it's, um, it's not <laughs> in any way. I, uh, I sort of behave in front of the camera more or less exactly as I do off the camera with, you know, definitely a mind for trying to be a little less, uh, you know, uh, logaric and verbose and getting to the point, you know, uh, with things, but it's, uh, there are less conscious decisions on my part than they are just sort of, uh, I don't know, involuntary, you know, it's, it's, um, well, okay. Then even if the actions, it's less intentional than, uh, than, than I'm, than I'm flattered to hear that it comes across, but, but it is, it, uh, I, I found that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a short man. I'm a short American. And, um, <laughs> and I find that that, yeah, it's helpful not to intimidate people. I think, you know, a lot of reporters try to put on this, uh, you know, adopt a, a very, like a slick persona, professional persona yeah, that, yeah. Uh, that can, you know, really unsettle the dynamic between them and the subject. And um, I, I'd much rather kind of, I don't know, I'd rather be friends with my subject in a, in a kind of way, you know, just like keep that even on that. Um, yeah. And stay out of the way, basically. Yeah. Yeah. But there's, there's still decisions that you guys make, like, especially in editing, Like basically on any episode that involves like manual labor where, you know, setting up the tent or roping the tugboats. I mean, there are copious shots of uh, you sort of like fumbling your way through. I'm forever hitting my thumb with a nail or falling in dog crap. Yeah. Yeah. And so you leave that now that might be. If it was up to the editors, that'd be the whole show. I feel like. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but but you're okay with it, and I like that. I, I have found, um, like, one of the things I learned from my dad growing up was to primarily use humor in a self-deprecating way rather than in a critical way. Uh-huh. And that when you make fun of yourself, it puts people at ease. If you make fun of somebody else, it puts them on edge. Of course. And guards yeah. them, right? And so I wonder if there's something to be learned there just – especially in this moment of intense polarization and sort of anxiety and conflict of like, I'd recommend it to our listeners as like an example of openness and uh, I don't know. It's kind of a humility. Yeah. Well, it's liberating to allow yourself to be the butt of a joke. Like it really, and you're right. It opens doors. It makes people, it does put people at ease. It's funny. We have a president who's the butt of like just about any joke you can come up with who can't see himself that way, which kind of makes it funnier except for the whole, nuclear weapons thing yeah um yeah exactly he just grounds his teeth in uh or grounds his feet into a push back against uh the caricature that he's creating of himself you see that picture of him in the truck uh no i haven't seen that one 
just okay. Google it. Yeah, him, it's Google him in a truck, it. a big like a, a big rig. Oh, I like, saw it with a caption of like President he looks like a, got to be a big boy today or something. Yeah, whatever, yeah, it looks it joke. looks like a toddler getting to, like it looks like he's even making a sound like he's honking the horn or something. I try not to openly mock Trump on this show. Mm-hmm. Um, it's no secret that I have been against Trump, but I'm not against conservative principles. That's kind of the line I try and draw. Well, he um, barely embodies conservative principles as far as exactly. I, I can tell. I mean, yeah, I, yeah, I agree. I agree. So speaking of Balls Deep, when did you get this idea of this immersive show? It dates back to the pre-video magazine days. Um, okay. Some of the earliest writing work I did with the magazine was we had we had an issue called the immersionism issue in 2005 and this was at a period when the media buzzword one of the media buzzwords at the time was google journalism where people you know it was it was right around the time of Jason Blair what we were trying to set ourselves at odds with was this you know, lazy style of writing where the, you know, the reporters wouldn't even leave their desk. They would just call people yeah, let me Google and that sources. For you. Yeah. And, um, and our, you know, you know, the approach we were, you know, ballyhooing ourselves for, for taking, but which we did was to, you know, you'd actually go and stay with a subject and like learn, you know, learn what you could from there. And you'd, you know, absorb the, you know, the smells in the setting. You'd, you'd try, try to do things, you know, like them, you'd wear their clothes, you'd, you know, crap in their toilets and you'd see what you know you see what you gleaned from that and it's funny because we translate that into or we directly take you know this kind of like we go there approach and put it into the video world which sort of doesn't make sense because like with video you have to go there because <laughs> otherwise you can't film it yeah um but it's uh the the mindset is uh is one of i i think a little a little greater um i mean embedment i try to avoid that word just because it's one of the just countless pieces of military jargon that's invaded writing newspaper writing and journalism and such but you try to do that versus just being kind of like a you know hapless parachuted in observer oh there's more military jargon um <laughs> you cannot avoid it no matter what you, you can't do. and so i'd written some pieces like i lived with a dominican family up in washington heights in manhattan for a few days and just written about that i joined three cults at the same time uh, i was kind of like juggling girlfriends for a month wow Around 2007, when Vice began producing DVD content, Thomas got his first gig hosting an eight-minute segment, a road trip with members of the band The Black Lips, in search of moonshine on the Sea Islands outside of Charleston. It went well enough that Thomas began transitioning from writer to video segment host. I spent about a month with this uh, biker gang called the American Brotherhood 9-11, for a 9-11 memorial um, motorcycle club made up of a lot of like former Hells Angels. And then there was a, a Chinese gal who sold crabs like down like deep, deep Chinatown, like where you don't see any white people at all. She sold like live crabs in paper bags to people on their way home. And so we, I, I like lived with her for a couple days and like she had a really, really tiny, sad apartment that she shared with another she was married and she shared it with a another married couple who had a uh like a newborn baby and it was like man that apartment was small and then the first one that aired was with the leather community kind of based out of the famous new york leather bar the eagle so i spent time at the eagle got my head shaved 
bought uh, tried on cock rings, things like that. Wow. And that's how Balls Deep started. Yeah. Um, what you end up with on Balls Deep is like empathy, basically. You end up with empathy and, and you laugh along the way. Uh, you know, there's some very silly stuff. There's some very sad stuff, depending on the episode. You know, you feel these people's pain. You share their kind of triumphs and their setbacks. We get to laugh at you sort of fumbling your way through whatever they do expertly. But then by the end, you you know, it, it's it's disarming in, in the best way. I guess it would be through your writing because that's where this approach came from. At some point in the process, did you stumble upon that that would be the conclusion of this kind of work? Or did you ever think, I want this to end with empathy. I therefore should approach it like such and such. It was very much a stumble. I think uh, I think in my writing, I'm, I'm not much less empathetic, but I definitely um, I, I poke a lot more fun in my subjects as well as myself. Because I can, you know. Because they're Cause not I'm, there on the camera. Because they're not there, exactly. Part of it was a product of yeah, of of holding my tongue for the like the stupid cheap jokes, and looking at it, you know, kind of in the editing room, what came across. I think uh, mm. I've my striving as much because I just have zero training at all in any of this stuff has been uh, on to kind of make the show as naturalistic as possible and to as i was saying earlier to kind of approach stories without like a set conclusion in mind to be open to uh you know start with questions you know big questions about groups and be open to whatever whatever i see there on the ground to try to you know do just the bare minimum of planning as far as uh what we're gonna film at what given time and such like that and just let things kind of unfold as naturally as they can when you have a camera crew hanging around you that's been the end result i think um i mean i've been making balls deep off and on since god yeah 10 years now i guess that's wild it's it's generally ended on the side of i don't know i i like and i found this i'm trying to think some documentary director that i love but can't remember the name of has i feel like said this before but you know you fall in love with your subjects in a way and like even when i'm with people who i you know am philosophically or politically or whatever at odds with just you know by nature of spending time with people and trying to understand things from their perspective like it's natural like there's no i i i I can't imagine any other reaction than a sense of you know kind of empathy with what they go through one would have to you know really detach themselves from being you know where you're at and in like the moment that you're sharing with them. And I think the only way you could do that without being like a, you know, a hard edged sort of like tough questions reporter is to do it in the editing room, which I've seen people do where you just basically make fun of people for, you know, what they wear and shit like that. (laughs) Once you get home, it's interesting though. Cause yeah, cause I've been doing it for 10 years, but the first time the word like empathy kind of came up, I think, um, when we were filming the first season for Viceland of Balls Deep, Spike Jones pointed it out. It was, yeah, it was like, it was kind of like putting a name on the sort of ineffable quality that had uh, been lingering there and which had, you know, when it was at its best, kind of made those episodes or, uh, you know, standalone videos that we were making, made them the best. And, you know, when it was kind of like at its weakest, those were generally the weakest videos. Yeah. But, but it took, That's... yeah, so it like took like nine years to really kind of like say mm. that word which is interesting. You know, it makes me actually think of touring. I, I was in a band and I toured basically all year long for what was your seven band? years. It was called Sherwood. 
Okay. It's like an emo pop band. And You're from Seattle, right? I'm from California. I live in oh, Seattle no. now. You live in yeah. Seattle. Okay. Yeah. But so we did like 800 like shows. Like sunny, sunny Day style emo pop? Uh, <laughs> no, not like Sunny Day Real Estate emo. That's real emo. We were like emo pop, like Jimmy Eat World style. Re emo. Okay. That's, yeah. Yeah. That's fun. I used to describe it to baby boomers as beach boys for high schoolers. Today's that's, high schoolers. Which, today's high school. Yeah. yeah. Which was kind of accurate at the time. Anyway, we did all these shows and you'd go on tour with a band and you would hear them play every night and you would get to know the people in the band and you would develop this attachment to even their music that you would not have had if someone had just showed you their record. And I think it brings up an interesting question of like, what is objective? Because on the one hand, you'd want to say, well, objectively, you wouldn't have liked it. It might not be that good of music or whatever. So you should doubt your experience of attachment to them, like after the fact. But on the other hand, like any group of three to six individuals who are willing to get in a van, write a bunch of songs from their hearts and like schlep their gear in and out every night and play for 50 or a hundred people is like such just like an inherently valuable thing that the attachment is warranted even if you wouldn't have loved that record if someone had just shown it to you and so it's kind of like you know i was thinking when when you uh quoted that director of like you fall in love with your subjects i was thinking well that could be a problem for a documentary filmmaker because you're supposed to be objective you're you're not writing fiction you're not telling a, a fictional story you're supposed to be showing things as they are but it's also kind of true like if you believe that human beings are supremely valuable for instance then that's objectively true. And you might only get to that value if you go spend time with people or listen to a band 40 times that you wouldn't have listened to or whatever, because then eventually you sort of like get past your own ego and your own sort of lack of concentration. And then the value of that person or that community like smacks you beside the head. And then you see that value and then you become attached to them. And to say that that's not objective, I mean, that's that's kind of snobby. Well, yeah, it, it, well, it certainly is. Um, I also I, I take major issue with the idea that objectivity is the you know the ultimate goal of um, yeah. reporting or documentary or anything of that nature. Um, I think that's been one of the, or I think that's like sort of like the what's the hamartia, the tragic flaw of um, kind of like late '90s, early thousands reporting. I've always felt like the, you know, whether we're calling it immersionism or whatever, but the idea of having, like, the, the, the reason, like, the reason Balls Deep's hosted and the reason, like, our, the show on HBO is hosted and stuff like that, I feel like that by, one, you're never going to achieve true objectivity. That's, you know, it's a shimmer. And by showing the person who's, I feel like there's a difference between, you know, a hosted thing and an unhosted thing where you've got that, like, voice of God narration. To me, that's always, like, it always sounds very authoritative and I find when I'm watching like an unhosted documentary and I hear something in the voiceover that's wrong or that I disagree with, I take far greater issue with it than I do when I see somebody on screen saying it because, because when I, you know, when I hear it 
in the voiceover, it's like reading it in print and just being like, well, how could, how could someone publish this? This is bullshit. This isn't right. Whereas when you see the person saying it, you can understand the, like where it's coming from the line of thinking, you know, that, you know, oh, well, that person, you know, at the very least that person believes that and you can take it with a greater grain of salt. It's true for me and ergo, I assume it's true for all viewers of anything, but I feel like that, you know, subjectivity, like being subjective is, which is such a bugaboo to conventional, uh, journalism and reporting and documentary filmmaking it's unavoidable and i feel like you know you should embrace it i was always I, i've never figured out exactly how true this really is but my impression of european journalism in the 90s when i was a high schooler was that you had um like what i would see were papers in whatever country that there would be the left-wing paper the right-wing paper the communist paper and stuff like that and there you know there wasn't quite the you know there wasn't like just the central like we just tell the news just the facts ma'am kind of papers over there and that when you read the papers you you understood that you were reading the communist paper and that it was going to be told from a communist perspective and i think that's generally a little bit of a healthier way of approaching things to just clarify whatever prejudices and biases um, that might be actually are kind be of up an, front. Yeah, that might be an unexpected kind of antidote to where we find ourselves today that I haven't really thought about. You know, people have lost so much faith in institutions and in sort of any kind of unbiased media. Maybe it's better, and not, you know, I'm just spitballing here, so nobody hold me to this, but maybe it's better to just like say, yes, this is Fox. You know it's going to be conservative. Here is, you know, BuzzFeed or, or Huffington Post. You know it's going to be liberal. Just, just read both. That, I don't know if that would work because I don't know that most people have the stomach to read the paper that they disagree with. Um, eh, I don't know. That, I, I find myself reading... Honestly, I find myself reading a lot more New York Post and Fox News than I do, like, Daily News and Times. What, what was that thing? Was it Rush Limbaugh, where it was, like, like half the listeners are people who disagree with him, and they're, like, mm. like tuning in to see what... Or is it Howard Stern? I can't remember. Yeah. Um, but I think there is a lot of, uh, whatever, across-the-floor sort of uh, viewership, that sort of uh, consumption of content. And I think it's already happening. I think, like... Yeah. I think... I mean, Fox News, like is like a weird pro-business conservative mouthpiece i think anybody who even if it's supporters i don't i i can't even picture in my head the kind of dolt who would say that they're you know objective or balanced or anything like that i know i know adults who do believe that they are the balanced ones and that cnn and msnbc are the biased ones um i don't know how far that goes i mean Hannity at this point is basically White House propaganda. I mean, he's he is he? He's, I thought he was a uh, critical. Maybe no. no I that's, think oh, uh, it's O'Reilly. O'Reilly's O'Reilly critical, is right? more critical. Okay. Yeah, Hannity is basically just like Trump TV, and that's a bummer. But back to you know, I don't think we're gonna solve this. I, the media question is really interesting, but I want to get back to empathy. Okay. So, oh, I also like. I was just realizing. I think I, I can hang on. I'm gonna grab it real quick because it's visible kay. right now. Because I was saying, yeah, how um, when when Spike Jones mentioned empathy, it was like, you know, it was like the, kind of the elephant in the room, I guess, for a decade. And it was put a name to something that was there that we never really uh, chased. But yeah. I, there was it was such a like there was this moment in the office when 
Um, and I don't know if it started with Eddie Moretti or who he got the book from, but like at one point, Eddie Moretti was the, I think the president of Viceland. He's been there forever and okay. he's won kind of the, the film and video wings in various degrees over time. And he had this just stack of this book, The Empathic Civilization by Jeremy Rifkin that he was giving yeah. out to everybody like right around the holidays, like for everybody to read. Let's see where my bookmark is. Was that it because is... of Spike Jones's uh, note? It was before that note on my show, okay. but I feel like empathy was the buzzword around the office maybe yeah. at the time, and it was either the result or the cause of reading this book. I've, my bookmark is literally on page 14. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was, that word was applied to my show, but it was also, you know, it was, it was certainly applied to like geekation. It was like our version of objectivity, you know, for well, So one thing that's interesting, even if you're not trying, let's say you didn't, you know, try and become this empathetic show or whatever you still are choosing which groups of people you're going to embed yourself in and a lot of those groups if if you just told someone hey this hipster reporter from new york is going to go embed himself with tent preachers i don't think i'm that hip well whatever but anybody almost anybody would assume it would be mocking of course yeah it's not mocking so when did it become clear to you and why that it was better to take people at their own word and sort of like assume validity to their worldview than it was to come in blazing with your own worldview and sort of knock it down? I don't know. I can't, I don't, I don't think I can, I don't know if I can put a, uh, put a specific moment or date on that. Um, it wasn't necessarily what I started with because uh, when when I joined the magazine and was first writing, it was you know kind of sardonic and vituperative in its uh, approach to to other people. But also, you know, it was also there was a fair amount of self deprecation in the the joking and the writing. Yeah, um, I think there like the the garden path that kind of led me to what we've ended up with with this kind of like empathy jazz is. Um, that I, I don't know. I always saw humor as this form of communion where like my favorite approach on things and, you know, it can start from joking about yourself, but when you can get into a state where everybody can, where everybody's in on the joke, you know, where, where you can mock other people. Like I, I think about my like circle of friends and we all, you know, are forever ragging on ourselves and then on each other. We're not nasty. Like we're not trying right. to like hurt each other's feelings. Like there's a it's a shared it's a shared sensibility, and everybody you know takes their takes their licks and dishes them back out. You know, I, I value humor to I think a degree that uh, many people maybe don't. That it's you know it's often seen as a break from you know gravitas and sincerity, and I think it surpasses both. I think it's kind of the ultimate. I I like I don't know. I consider it as close to you know the like strictest like kind of religion that I adhere to and I do feel like that like laughter and and humor is one of the highest forms of human communion well so that leads great into this next question I wanted to ask you specifically about the episode where you embedded with these revivalist tent preachers so I'll give a brief synopsis basically there's this man, he's probably what, in his 50s or 60 or something like that? Late 60s. Late 60s. Yeah. And his dad was a tent preacher. He's a tent uh-huh. preacher. His daughter sort of helps him advertise the uh, revivals, the tent revivals. 
and you know the numbers are dwindling but it's an old kind of tradition and you were just like why do they still do this and i'm gonna go find out and so you you hang out with them excellent excellent episode thank you um and not only did you hang out with them they ask you to preach there's a little bit where you say you know i don't i was raised christian but not southern baptist and I have never sort of been around this charismatic preaching before. And I also don't want to like lie and sort of say something I don't believe. So you kind of found this passage you could kind of riff on and you, you did your darndest and uh, it was really, it was touching the relationship between you and what was the, forget the main guy's name. Harvey Purdue. Yeah. Harvey. I didn't get the impression. Um, so it doesn't matter for most of this conversation, but I, I am, I'm a Christian practicing Christian and this show is not mostly about that, but mm-hmm. I did not feel all that is to say, I didn't feel offended by that. I didn't feel like and I'm not a Southern Baptist, but I didn't feel talked down to. I felt like that was a really cool moment for me to watch because worldview wise, I am, I align more with you than I did with Harvey Purdue, mm-hmm. but I share in some senses, his faith. What in your mind through that whole thing, I know this is a long setup, but what was going on there between you and him and his family and the people in that tent, even though you didn't believe the same things that they believed? Well, I don't know if we don't believe the same things hmm. necessarily. I don't like, I'm, I'm certainly not a practicing Christian. I don't really identify as such, but there was a lot of interest to me beyond like, you know, the kind of, tourist gawking you know oh look, look at, at these you know, hillbillies yeah right yeah parts of that that i was that i was really interested that like ooh, a chief for instance um and it kind of came up kind of i was a lot of good things to do by accident um he had a he had a really taut description of the kind of the function of the trinity that like made things like that was just clearer than any sense i'd ever had of it that also you know that hammered home the fact that i didn't previously understand like the trinity and was just like you know it was a a good tidy like you know kind of internal gong ringing sort of uh explanation of it and in part that's that's a lot of you know what i was looking for i i you know I was I was interested, obviously, in like the nuts and bolts of what he does, like uh, you know how how it works, how those things make money, how you set up a f-ing tent, all that. Jazz, which is like, by the way, like I'm surprised that thing ever made it up. Yeah, That's a, there was the the most uh, drama in the episode was like, is this tent gonna stand? It like, we t- <laughs> and you know I don't know how clearly it comes across through the editing, but like he told us it was, we were going to put that up in like three hours and that he'd done them by himself. And like that thing took us three days and everybody was working like the cameraman, the sound guy, we were all like hammering that and it barely got up in time. Uh, we like, I mean, that thing came down a few times on top of us. Like we almost died. And if they hadn't gone like proselytized that, like Sonny, the, the kid they found in the hardware store, yeah. like there's no way that thing was going to be up. Um, oh right, because like, they they go to kid. tell him about it, and yeah. then he offers to come help erect yeah. the tent. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was a literal godsend. It was uh, it was funny. Um, <laughs> and then he got all cleaned up when he came. He looked like Yosemite Sam when he when he combs back his hair. It was real yeah, cute. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I was interested in it because I I feel like uh, especially like the older I get, like 
I'm not a church going Christian, but that's definitely like my basis for understanding. Like I was, you know, like my family was like, we were, you know, middle of the road, Methodist Sunday Christians. Like, you know, half the time we'd go to like, I went to Sunday school and that just, yeah. but half the time we'd skip like service and go get breakfast, you know? But when I, when I look at, especially if I look at other religions, I always, my point of reference is like the Bible and Christianity and, you know, from the, like, kind of Billy Bragg communist sense, or no, who's, who's a good, like, super left-wing Christian? Like, you know the House Martins, that band? Like, um, there's that... There's that are, there, yeah, are, is that the are, band that oh. does the True Detective song? No, no, oh, no. Okay. They, were, they were, like, an English band from the 80s. Okay. Uh, it has, had a hit called Happy Hour. But they were, like, communist Christians, and, like, they're... Kurt Vonnegut's a good, good example, because he was really okay. into, like, the Sermon on the Mountain, the Beatitudes, and all yeah. that. I so, just think of like Dorothy Day and Thomas Merton and and the whole kind of like sure, Catholic yeah. worker movement. Okay, from yeah, yeah. Left leaning Christians. Exactly. Yeah. No. There's well, Martin um, Sheen today. Martin Sheen get he's he's been like arrested at the L.A. Oh, yeah. County Courthouse like a thousand times for when he used to go protest the yeah. uh, School of the Americas, right? Yeah, and the they, 80s. he would just he would just get maybe not a thousand. He would get arrested once a week for like right. years. And he did that, yeah, and he did that with, like, the, the priests and nuns. From, yeah, and it was, it was like, thing. while he was filming West Wing, I think, at one point even, or he had to stop doing it to film West Wing or something. Huh. Anyway, if you haven't listened to his episode of On Being with Krista Tippett, uh-huh. amazing. But what about, so there's this moment in that episode where you preach, right? Yeah. I was most interested in that moment because embedding in a community is one thing. You getting up and preaching at the tent revival, I thought was like a step further than most people would go. And therefore, I found that interesting. So I just would like to hear more about that. Well, I didn't know that I didn't share necessarily the feelings they had. And I, I, I specifically wondered that if mm. like, because for, for uh, great, for instance, like when the old ladies and stuff are rolling on the floor and like speaking in tongues. And, and prior to that, when I was asking uh, Harvey's daughter, Jenny Joe Purdue, about how she felt when she'd undergone similar sort of like uh, trances. And I think, uh, you know, it's it sounds flippant in my describing it as like being an ex, like rolling on ecstasy. Even if you take drugs out of the equation, like I've, you know, I've had very, you know, very similar, like really visceral sort of atavistic responses to, you know, music and art. And, and it was, it was very, at the front of my mind was like, whether or not there was a difference, if it was just that theirs was in the framework of, you know, Pentecostal Christianity and mine was in the framework of this more like, you know, kind of like secular art. But um, hmm. what you know was it actually different? I, I can't remember if this is actually makes it into, made it into the cut or not. But uh, she sang this little light of mine, and yeah. I got like super jazzed, and it was just like just slightly off key in a kind of outsidey kind yeah. of way. Like, and at the moment, I was just sort of like, was like, was like, well, who am I to say at least that I don't feel the same way as you know the person next to me speaking in tongues right now? You know, yeah, I feel very, I feel very, uh, you know, enraptured. Right. By, uh, by this moment. And so, mm. yeah. That's interesting. Have any of these groups that you've spent time with changed you in a, in like a semi-permanent or permanent kind of a way that you can point to? I mean, I'd say every group changes me. Uh, you know, as, as I've still got my boot buddy here from Hank Vogler. This is, I can't <laughs> really changed, at least for winters, it changes my life. Yeah, I, I haven't like, I don't know, I haven't converted to islam or you know left new york to go raise sheep for a living but i take 
the lessons learned and the experiences like all that adds up to you know who I am and it may not be in a you know a really kind of concise you know like hard stop new life kind of uh effect but so that brings me to the hardest question I have for you which you will hear after I give a little ad for the Patreon campaign. Here's that obligatory spot where I try and convince you to join the Patreon campaign for Depolarize. It starts at three bucks a month. You can feel really good about yourself for supporting something that is like bringing value to American civil discourse. At least I sure hope it is. This episode with Thomas, there's an uncut version that went out to patrons only, but if you sign up, it's available. In fact, everything that has gone out to patrons before will be available to you. There's an upcoming uncut episode with David Bazan, the controversial artist and songwriter, uncut with Aurelion from last week, and special conversations, radio spots, other stuff like that that I do with other people. And I'm trying to figure out a way also to get kind of a regular web chat going online. It's a bit of an issue with what site to use for that. But point is, we're going to be in touch. I'm going to try and take care of my patrons. I appreciate them so much. So if you want to be a part of that community, head to patreon.com slash depolarize or go to depolarizepodcast.com and click the become a patron button. And I will be so grateful. We're almost at the first goal, which is just covering the hard costs of this show. Once we reach that, the second goal is what I call the federal minimum wage goal, where I estimate the time it takes me to do the show, and I pay myself federal minimum wage for that time, $7.25 an hour. So that would be amazing. Uh, it means I could spend more time and energy on the show. Anyway, sorry to bug you guys about this. Thank you for your support. And here's Thomas. So that brings me to the hardest question I have for you or sort of statement, which is I love the show. I always feel empathy. I end up feeling empathy for every group. Um, And that's why I think it's so effective and why I love watching it. But the T-Girls episode, which is you focus mainly on these two transitioning women, uh, born male transitioning to, to female. That episode and, you know, the listeners, don't judge me unless you watch it. Um, that is the only time I did not leave feeling more empathy. or Not that I didn't feel empathy for them as individuals, but I certainly felt like less on their side in terms of like the cultural conversation or the medical conversation or the, you know, like the issue of transgender rights and transitions and is it a, is it a psychiatric disorder that should be treated like a disorder? Should it be treated through transitioning? You know, just the fact that there's there's controversy around this question. And that episode, I felt like you capped it off with this, with this kind of monologue of you you said something to the effect of like, I feel so much more for them or or whatever. And I kind of left that episode going like, these people are like not mentally well. I'm I'm going to sound like such a jerk here to some listeners, but <laughs> just to sort of make my point a little bit, they go to these like competitions where there's like these cat call things where like they see how much they can pass off as a, as a, a girl. And Drag they balls? just, yeah, yeah. And, the they, balls, yeah. and just in general, the, the two women just, they just seemed like very 
sort of like unnaturally um, focused on a lot of this aesthetic stuff and just, just seemed like the kind of people I would not like start a business with or like <laughs> trust with a large sum of money or ask their opinion because I would think it would be good. And I, I'm, I'm being transparent here. I, yeah. I could totally be wrong about them. I just mean that's the impression I got as a viewer and that was different than other episodes. And yet you had this monologue at the end. So I thought it might be difficult to do, but also interesting to kind of get your take on those girls and why maybe if we could figure out why we came to, to different reactions from the time. I'm trying to think. Cause, cause when, when I came out of that episode, when I was the monologue you're describing, I, I found myself uh, like, whereas with like the tent preacher or, uh, or say like the Muslim family, I found, you know, common touchstones and I, I felt like I could really understand the mindset uh, yeah. of them or, you know, like felt like I could not to say that I actually, you know, thought, thought the way that they did or, you know, in any way embodied their uh, mentality yeah. or not that there was, there was a gap with, uh, um, with the trans women to put simply is that I'm not trans and that there is like right. a, there's, there's something, it sounds really harsh to say they're, you know, mentally unwell, but there's, you know, there's a kernel of truth there that there's, there's a medical, there's a medical issue that underlies their very identity in our culture. And um, that, you know, the thing like aspects of everyday life that we take for granted uh, surrounding gender, you know, are great big question marks in their mind. And I found that, um, you know, I think it's, you come down to, to the whole notion that was, you know, originally posed to uh, homosexuals that's now, you know, kind of been culturally more or less accepted on that front and is now being applied more, you know, being the debate has uh, has moved to uh, to trans persons of you know is it is it something you're born with or is it a choice you're making and I find myself looking at it and I look at the hardship that it involves the danger it inflicts like high on the body risks and, and super whatnot, high suicide yeah. risk and and one thing that I didn't know because I knew about the the statistic about the uh, the shorter lifespan that trans people have a plague years like level like. I think it's 38 or 39 life expectancy. I I thought that was due to the suicide risk for the most part. But uh, in speaking with the members of the trans community, that part of it is that the hormone regimen, the physical act of transitioning is just hell on the body. It's very difficult. It, It hurts the liver like just tremendously, which, you know, from the side that, you know, of people who believe that it's, you know, kind of like a lifestyle choice is, you know, an argument that it's the symptom of a really, you know, an unwell mind is something to be guarded against. But to me, like, I I took it as, like, in my mind, nobody would willingly undergo this level of hardship if there wasn't something mm. um, deep and burning inside them driving it. Uh, the artist David Wojnarowicz, whose name I just butchered from the 80s, <laughs> who died of AIDS, had a, a beautiful passage he once wrote about what it is to be like a gay man. And I wish I had it in front of me, but um, that uh, it's it, it, it's long, and so I'm going to paraphrase it horribly, but is to say, you know, that he starts by just describing, without saying what it is, this, this just this burning volcanic sort of like just impulse inside that like through any of its expression can lead to, you know, like just being hospitalized and ostracized and uh, given, given electroshock therapy, which, you know, 
just the fulfillment of that is, you know, it, he understands to be tantamount to a death sentence in culture. And at the end says, and it, and what it is, is the urge to lie naked on top of another boy. Like, and it's, uh, and what was important to me about the trans episode was to just to recognize that there's an alien sense that I haven't experienced and more likely than not will, you know, never experience. You probably would have experienced it by now. Yeah. By now, probably. Yeah. I have to take them at their word for it and to, you know, if there's a case where I may not be able to empathize, but can at least sympathize with the, you know, the difficulty that it undergoes. Um, I get, I get what you're saying about uh, like starting a business with them, but I think it, it's, um, kind of imperative to point out uh, both the uh, trans ladies we filmed with, uh, especially Tiara Chanel was uh, from the roughest childhood, you know. Mm. Um, you can imagine, yeah. just like absolutely like alienated from her family in Memphis, had to come up to New York because there's no social support network down in Tennessee or in the South uh, to the degree yeah. that there is in New York as far as getting, uh, you know, medical help and housing and, you know, the lifestyle that goes along with uh, with the biology of being trans, because I do, I do believe it is a, an inborn trait for sure. Um, but the lifestyle, you know, it's, it's, it's rough. It's on the periphery of acceptable society. It is festooned with drugs and prostitution. And it's a dangerous world, and it's, you know... Sometimes it's more voluntary than not on the part of the trans person who's undergoing it. But sometimes they're, you know, sometimes people are just born into a rough situation and have to kind of put up with that. And that colors like who they are and what they do. And Tiara Chanel, I I don't remember how, you know, and from an outside viewer's perspective, I don't know how clearly it comes across, but is, you know, has... um, has worked the streets for a while, but is now going to school, is very excited about turning yeah. a new leaf and uh, and about moving into that. But I can't re- I don't think this was in the edit, but um, expressed kind of, uh, to me at one point, she was like, you know, it's really hard not to go back to sex work. She's like, that was really easy, f- good money. And like, it was exciting. And she's like, and I, you know, I just have to, you know, it's almost like an addiction you have to get past that. You have to just remind yourself every day not to, not to go into that because of how dangerous the life is and stuff. We're also, you know, like for all the, you know, the focus on the aesthetics and stuff, one that is, you know, that's a part of the life that we take for granted that they don't have the luxury of that, you know, to pass as a woman. Yeah. There is a ton of aesthetic maintenance that goes into that. But also we were, you know, we're filming an episode about that. So that is the focus. I think both of them are responsible employees of uh, at their various jobs and they do, uh, they, you know, do well for themselves and are trying to better themselves. I can't apply that to the entire trans community because people are, you know, people are people and there's some people who are more responsible than others, but um, I don't know. That was, that was my takeaway from it. Yeah. I don't know that I would have like, if I were in your place, I would have said, see, <laughs> see, here's the, you know, they're wrong, you know, or whatever. I, I'm totally not advocating. I'm not saying you should have done it any differently. I just, yeah, I think that, you know, we're not going to be able to sort of litigate the trans debate here just to sort of note some devil's advocate stuff, at least, is is that, you know, uh, there is emerging kind of a chic culture among certain, like, left-leaning parents of, like, well, I don't know if my child will identify as what they're born. And, and, and I think that stat of, like, 39-year life expectancy, like, that's not something to f*** around with. I mean, 
I think there are a lot of open questions. Uh, sexual orientation is psychologically obviously much different than gender dysphoria. You know, it's, it's sexual orientation is closer to hair color, you know, in, in that sort of a thing. Whereas this other one, this other gender dysphoria, the proposed solutions to that are, have such higher consequences. And so I'm very worried about a culture that is cavalier about gender transition because, because for the exact reasons you're saying, because the costs are so high for people who go through that, you, you, at very minimum, you'd want even transgender advocates to say, nobody go through this unless you must, because you wouldn't wish it on anybody. It's sort of like how you wish pro-life and pro-choice advocates would say, at the very minimum, let's not have a lot of abortions. And yet the pol- the politics gets in the way of, on abortion and the politics gets in the way on transgender issues as well. Let's not call it cool. Yeah, I definitely get what you're saying. I think, and I've seen, you know, I've seen the news stories about that. I think a cavalier attitude is uh, is not not super ideal, but I also don't think that that's something that's genuinely sweeping the culture. I think the like, yeah. you know, 10 or 15 parents who've been featured in like the New York Times and on Dateline and stuff like that aren't representative of some like enormous, you know, sea change population in, you know, in the American middle class. Um, that's a that's a super anecdotal thing. And this is the statistics of precise numbers I know often get uh, are usually sort of like the province of um, anti-gay or anti-trans arguments. But the number of gay people in America is, you know, it's nowhere near a majority. It's a, it's a small, it's a small group of people. And I think that's, uh, I think the, the great bete noir of the, you know, gay agenda being promoted and of all these kids being led towards homosexuality is just like, a, it's a flight of fancy. I think it's, it's a small I, yeah, group I'm, of people. I'm a I lot th- less worried about the, the sort of the homosexual, the so-called homosexual agenda, which maybe there is like some, mental willingness to be bisexual or something that people could choose, but also the consequences of, of making a wrong choice or experimenting in the wrong way at 17 years old are so much lower than the consequences of like, you know, uh, and it's dumb to use pop culture, but like there's the character in the OA who's like getting black market testosterone to take. Like that's the kind of thing that has me worried is, is, the real cost to like teenagers who really do not know where their sexuality and where their brain is going to land because it's still developing, it's still growing. And and I've just known people in my personal life, teenagers struggling with that stuff, that there are some real costs there if we're too cavalier about it, which isn't, ne- you don't necessarily need to be the kind of person who lets your child choose their gender to be still maybe too cavalier. Yeah. You know? Well, I think there's a difference between being cavalier and being like uh, open. And sure. I feel like the the answer to, you know, the in my mind, the best way to mitigate uh, the dangerous consequences of things like hormone therapy and the, you know, the elements of transitioning that have the harder cost on the human body is to, you know, involve the medical community as much as possible. And I think New York's, um, the various subsidy programs they have for, um gender dysphoric people and um and homosexuals and and people um suffering or you know hiv positive i think that's it keeps it out of the shadows you know it's a classic it's the classic gay argument and um i think that that can help uh 
kind of decrease the uh, the dangerous consequences that there are. My fear is that you know the the presentation of a cavalier attitude just leads to you know the pendulum being thrown back all the way in the other direction and everybody going for black market testosterone or whatever covering yeah. up. And um, I don't think that's you know I don't think that's good either. Yeah, interesting. Well, I just that's great. I, I wanted to chat about that with you. I I think we'll. You know, there's obviously plenty more to be said on that topic. Sure. Um, I've just got a couple more questions for you. You have spent like a hundred times more hours than any of us traveling the country, embedding yourself into like radically different groups of people. What have you learned that can help us make sense of this political and social disjunction that we are currently experiencing? Not much. Really? Um, No, um, it's like, it's, it's, it's weird because they're, they're very simple lessons. It's like, it's just that I, I think of all the people I've met, all the people I've disagreed with, I don't think I've met anybody I would describe as ill-intentioned. I don't think, you know, it feels like the majority of the people, and there aren't, there are certainly people who are ill-intended, but I feel like in everybody's mind, everybody is kind of out to do, out to do something good. And for the most part, people are just trying to like kind of be comfortable with themselves and have happy lives in that jazz. As far as where we're at right now, it's uh, I know this is like it's the kind of thing that like this argument will show up in like a feature, like a like a little editorial in like the Atlantic or whatever, and then left wing types will be like, "This is stupid," just like blame, like almost like victim blaming or whatever. And it's just that like. TV really laid the groundwork for where we're at right now. If you look at um, the television culture of the mid-thousands, if you look at reality TV, of which our president was a featured star, it's garbage. It's garbage that was created by executives who had a ex- extremely low opinion of their viewership's intelligence, of their um, you know comprehension. And it should be said, they were rewarded by their viewership for such decisions. Yeah, exactly. They pandered to them. And it's basically like, you know, they fed the country like the televisual equivalent of bootleg McDonald's food. And now they've elected bootleg McDonald's food president. You know, it's like there's really blood on the hands of like these executives who didn't offer their audience the chance for anything edifying for anything of nuance whatsoever we had uh we had a show that we worked on before the hbo show for mtv that was a disaster that i'm really like i don't know that i'm kind of glad it got it didn't get shelved but it got kind of like hidden uh like it was put on a really late time slot and i don't think they've syndicated it at all but the notes we used to get from them were just like appalling i i one of my favorites was uh I can't remember what the story was, but it was the note from the network was make ending less smart. And (laughs) the overwhelming sense you got from them, it was just clear as day, was that they had, MTV had gone from whatever audience they had in the 90s to a audience solely comprised of the demographic of 14-year-old girls. And they were scared shitless of losing that demographic. So if something didn't appeal to a 14 what they assumed a 14 year old girl would like like it had to go or it had to be well i think that this argument that is shape. good but if you're going to make this argument you might as well go back before the mid aughts i mean neil postman's book amusing ourselves to death came out in 1985 yep and that was about sort of the televisionification of education and all forms of communication a transition from the printed word to to basically television sound bites and his um, mentor McLuhan was you know rallying about this in the 60s um yeah 
that's uh, the global yeah. village right there. And I think, yeah, I think those lessons have never been absorbed by the uh, the media machine. And I hope that some of the stuff that's happening on Viceland maybe puts a little bit of a dent and creates like a slightly higher, you know, kind of level of discourse around everything or anything um i i found it really refreshing because i don't know i you know i kind of grew up in the suburbs and in the south and as a teenager in you know kind of like just post pubescent kind of everything phase you had a really low regard of you know the uh kind of the great unwashed mass but what i found interesting was when um you know like youtube hulu and netflix and all that started one of, like some of their most popular categories were um documentary and that like the idea that started to get like slightly exploded with i guess like michael moore's stuff in the late 90s that there could be a popular interest in documentary filmmaking or television that there's this executive mindset at these networks and in the movie studios and stuff that you know if you make something educational in any way or edifying or smart you're going to lose people. People are going to turn it off. People are going to hear a word they don't understand, and then they're going to close the window or they're going to change the channel. And I've never had that experience in watching television or a movie. I'm, I will more commonly open a tab and try to look up a word or something like that. And I feel like that's genuinely the case of a lot of people that like our country is full of inquisitive, curious people. I think for that like even the people you wouldn't consider the type to try to like learn things and better themselves. If that's a word, better like, themselves. you know, the like, you know, yeah. the, the graveyard shift at the, you know, Charleston, West Virginia, Taco Bell, like those, like e- each individual, a lot of those people like are smarter than they let themselves believe. And a lot of like, a lot of people want to challenge themselves, want to learn things about the world are very excited about, uh, learning new experiences. And, um, there's a tremendous bias against them. One of the interesting things in hanging out with Hank Vogler on the Sheep Ranch was what he watches on TV in the morning because he gets up at 4 a.m. and then just like watches TV for eight hours and then goes to work. And there's a, a channel whose name I'm going to screw up. It's like called Rural TV. They run like hee haw reruns and um, they do like just interesting farm report kind of stuff. There's channels huh. like there's. There's a show on hydroponics that shows you how to grow like better tomatoes. That's like, and, and not all of it's great. Like some of it's dry as you can. But some imagine. of it's like super informative. Some of it's great. Yeah. Well, it's all like for the most part, most of it's pretty informative. Some of it's not that entertaining or interesting sometimes. But I don't know. I, like I work in media and like kind of keep abreast of a lot of things going on. But I, I had no clue. Like I'd never heard of the channel, and it's extraordinarily popular amongst rural people you know and yeah. i'd uh i would have you know would have said it's obvious that there's a uh two distinct cultures between rural americans and um the suburban or city dwelling or whatever but it the divide and the kind of the the sense of self-identification on the rural side hadn't its intensity hadn't occurred to me it had just never mm-hmm. and it kind of smacked me in the face that you have, uh, yeah, you have a portion of the country who feels completely at odds with the other portion of the country yeah. in an almost unbridgeable level, almost as if they're like, you know, it's it's a foreign culture. You, the rural-urban divide. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and that's, I think that a lot of reporting of the exit polls, the election showed that the rural urban divide was the clearest divide along which you could separate Trump and non-Trump voters. That That's basically where the bifurcation is, is occurring most rapidly in America. Well, so Thomas, I've got one last question that I ask everybody. And so given your unique experience and just your perspective and what you've learned doing your job and spending time with all these people, I would like you to identify one argument or line of thinking on the left and one on the right that are wrong or misguided. That are bullshit. Okay. Yeah. One Um, for each. So equal offenders. Okay. Uh, God, there's a lot. There's a lot on the left that I absolutely hate. Hey, Um, yeah. Since, since you're obviously a more liberal guy, you can, you could do a few for the left. You only have to give us one for the right. I, I prefer for people to critique their own sides more or less. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I'm trying to like I'm trying to think of specific arguments, which I'm which I'm kind of getting hung up on. But um, I feel like uh, on a on a kind of macro sense that there's a, a sense of rectitude on the uh, left wing that's just like absolutely loathsome, you know, and that there's uh, what do you um, mean by rectitude? This kind of complete an inflexible sense of rightness that doesn't allow them to even that that the viewpoints that are counter to theirs aren't just you know aren't just a, another opinion or somebody else's argument but that they are you know that they're flat out wrong and that they're against like that they're against history that they're against uh that the notion of progress as this monolithic like um linear sort of entity and i'm holding a book right now because i wasn't going to remember its name or its author um, the True and Only Heaven by uh, Christopher Lash, which is both a criticism and and kind of like a historical overview of the idea of progressivism and the idea of progress Interesting. Um, as it's evolved over the last 150 years in American and Western culture um, by fits and starts. And um, I think it's hard to knock that out of a lot of people's heads. It's hard to make them like it's 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 hard to get a sense when talking to people, um, and, and you run into this, like especially like parties in New York and stuff like that, like liberal viewpoints held are not a product of one's upbringing or a certain way of thinking, but are simply the right thing. And I think it's it's yeah. it's religious, you know, it's it's dogmatic and it's religious, and it's you know, and therefore becomes inarguable. And it's like there's no give for the other side's opinion and there's then no like attempt to there's no attempt to meet it on its own terms i think of uh like i don't know i think like the basket of deplorables it's like if she had said because what was the the full phrase trump has he's like there's two baskets or whatever there's half of them are good people and the other half i call basket of basket of deplorables if she called the other basket a bunch of like racist shit stains that might have had an effect you know and (laughs) if uh and i kept saying this during the debates it drove me insane if she just turned around and he's like and just like or like like turned to the camera i was just like you believe this stick you know just had one moment of like just like it always gets called like sinking to their you know sinking to the other side's level sinking to the mud but of just like genuine like simple like expression which in a lot of circles is, you know, is just heresy. You know, you can't, you know, you can't forego your, you know, 18 clause stupid James Joyce sentence just to say something 
plainly. So and it's then, a kind of an elite, a kind of a snobbishness. Yeah, absolutely. And, and elitism yeah. is a is a you know elitism is absolutely a uh, major failing point of the left wing. And, and it's and and the thing is, there's like. There's a healthy elitism that you know could be strived for, and it's funny yeah, because like, elitism. I have used to a be... doctorate because I spent six years learning about yeah. this, and therefore I know six years worth of knowledge about it. And that is an elite thing if you are an expert. But that's you can do that without holding it over somebody. Right? Yeah, you don't have to condescend all the f-ing time. And it's funny because that used to be like that was William F. Buckley's like mainstay. Like that was he was the most elitist, condescending person on the block and that used to be so heavily associated with um conservatism and the way conservatism kind of like survived when it should have died after goldwater was or nixon at least was by adopting the clear language of reagan you know a a, a man whose policies i absolutely hate but who sold them with tremendous uh you know just like like really casual sort of um kind of casual parlance there you go okay so let's let's look at the right what do we got from the right um let's see i think the right wing has given itself over to conspiracy which is stupid which which attributing malice i think and this could be true of both sides attributing malice to things that can otherwise be explained by incompetence is uh Hmm. is like i don't know i think that's the product of an unwell mind that's certainly happening on the left towards trump i mean yeah a lot of stuff is like you know Trump is out to demolish democracy or he just like really doesn't know what he's doing in this particular way. Yep. So conspiracy. And and I think that extends too to like, like I think the absolute dumbest thing in the world is a fear of Sharia law taking hold in America. And uh, because that's a common problem. That's a common fear. Why is it silly? What's the proportion of Muslims in America? Is it 0.01% or is it 0.1%? It's, it's very low. Yeah. I don't know what it's, the number is. It, numer- numerically, it's virtually impossible. Yeah. It, it, like, it just, it simply wouldn't happen. And I, I really loved the show you did with, I can't remember his name. Um, Judd. Yeah. About Islam. Uh, that was it was one of my favorite, uh, Thanks, my favorite episode of yours. Um, but a really illuminating, illuminating podcast in general that, uh, that and I liked how you uh, got to the... Uh, or I don't know, you, you you really got into the nitty-gritty of what like what Sharia is and all that. And I think from the right side, like the right's arguments about Islam are just like it's it's such it's it's what people were saying about communists in the fifties. It's just such horse shit. You um, think it's just a lot of bogeyman yeah, without it a is. lot of details. And I think there's like I think there's like the threat of like Islamic terrorism is like is an important thing to be working on, but until it's detached like until it's detached from because that that then goes in the opposite direction as far as numbers go because it's like if islam's the problem then one third of the world is the problem and it's like we've lost that fight <laughs> like there's that's, yeah. that's 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 not even world war three that's just like a yeah global, it just it does seem very unlikely that one third of the world are yeah if they would just be honest with themselves they'd be terrorists exactly that's just, right that's just is does not seem true and if you look at that that's it's, it's grounded like all the surveys that are cited are wonky and like it's just uh the the misquoting of the quran is is just like rampant and so i'd I'd say yeah as far as i'm sure there's plenty of things i can think of on the right but the big one is yeah is thinking that islam is some sort of 
you know, is this global conspiracy to take over America and that it, it has any, you know, if it were that it has any idea of success. I mean, I think yeah. about that in terms of like, you think about like the refugee situation. I think about the similarity from immigrants that there's, it's, it's, it's weird because it's phrased as if it's long-term thinking, the idea that we're not going to, you know, like, oh, we're going to cut off all, uh, you know, all refugees from Syria, let's say. And in my mind, it's the shortest term thinking I can imagine because you've got like, to go fully completely hypothetical and anecdotal which is i know one of the big crimes of the left is the hypotheticals as i think like gavin mckinnis and jim goad always put it but you've got the you've got the six-year-old boy who's a refugee in from homs let's say or whatever and the argument on the right is he comes to let's say he comes to denmark or wherever gives him or comes to america gives him sanctuary and becomes enamored of radical Islam, is radicalized online by, uh, you know, um, somebody promoting ISIS or Al-Qaeda, and then becomes this terror agent within the United States. And in my mind, um, you've got the, once you've got the kid in the United States, you have the exposure to Western culture. The Muslims I hung out with were, like, so American, it was, like, it was almost, like, a little much like they're really into disney world and shit like that <laughs> like it doubts in my mind it doubts the 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 power the hegemony of western culture which is this just incredible force maybe not for good but certainly for like kind of complacency certainly for self-gain and if you block that off if that six-year-old's left in syria like instead of having a choice between being super american and trying to have a girlfriend and going to disney world or going online and learning about like radical Islam and reading that Al-Qaeda magazine and deciding to blow himself up at a Marine recruiting station. Yeah. There's no choice. He's in a place where his only choice is to join ISIS and, and fight with that. And it's possible he has the added antipathy of being refused entry to the West that, uh, that just kind of like goes with what he's being taught by those cruddy imams, you know, yeah. so, so called imams, let's say, yeah. um, so it's just like we're just building up we're just giving them recruits basically man well thomas i love your show thank you for your time is there like an easy site that i can point people to where there's uh you know a lot of your writings like are they archived yeah uh it's all on vice.com um okay and That's if you just a, find something by Thomas Morton, you click Thomas Morton, it'll give you all the pages. Yeah, it should give yeah. you a list, yeah. Um, and then Balls Deep is on, when, when is, is it the third season coming out, or what's the... Um, no, we'll be filming it soon. I, um, we're, we're in a little bit of a pause, because we shot the first and second seasons just, like, right back to back with each other, okay. so taking a wee break before we embark on uh, season three, I am developing a dating show right now with my girlfriend who is a matchmaker in the east village uh named amy van doren and runs a runs a matchmaking service called the modern love club okay so hopefully that will either happen simultaneously to season three or maybe a little bit before it and then there's also a thing i'm working on called mondo vice which may or may not happen but i'll just leave that name out there because that's all that exists right now, essentially. Um, but I'm going to, once we're done here, I'm going to go try to turn that into a thing. So, Balls Deep. Balls Deep, something wow. that might sound like Modern Love Club and Mondo Vice to watch for. Or none of them. We'll see. Okay, but, also, well, but there's also Vice HB, like the Vice show on HBO, the weekly show. Um, yeah. I just finished the segment in Nigeria for that. So you can at least watch that. that that's for real. That exists. Okay. 
Well, thanks, man. Yeah, thank um, you. And you know, I <laughs> I normally ask people if listeners should follow them on Twitter, but your Twitter handle is babyballs69, mm-hmm. which I think just shows me you don't really care about Twitter. Uh, I think I care about it. I don't know. I, I I care about it as much as I think it should be cared about. Should be cared about. <laughs> I use it for well, joke, want, jokes yeah. and to share links. I, I My tweeting days were, you know, 2012 to 2015, let's say. I've got a... Uh, moved on i find myself yeah i well like i kind of i made all the zingers i could and they weren't even good really (laughs) but i'm on every so often uh, i'm a little more active well no i'm kind of equally active on instagram that one's just baby balls wow i can't believe you got that nobody had taken it i Um, know i was an early (laughs) early in (laughs) well thanks man and uh we'll just keep paying attention to what you're doing appreciate your work thank you very much ditto So the uncut version of this conversation with Thomas, which went out to patrons only, but which you can hear if you join as a patron at patreon.com slash depolarize, actually had like 20 extra minutes. And in a couple weeks, the David Bazan interview will have a good 30, maybe 40 extra minutes that won't be on the show. So keep it in mind if you want to support this financially. The song you've heard underneath today's episode is called Mean Streets. And it's part of a collaboration that I'm working on with a friend named Michael Parker. And it is available for podcast licensing and any other project at dancoke.net, K-O-C-H, if you're in the creative industries, perchance. We will see you next week with another great conversation. I don't know exactly who it's going to be yet. I've got a couple in the can I'm choosing from still. But man, how great was Thomas? so funny i just re-listened to that this morning and i just was cracking up trying not to wake up my wife in bed uh so good so grateful for his time grateful for you guys we'll see you next week find me on twitter d-a-n-k-o-c-h there's a bunch more stuff at depolarizedpodcast.com and on facebook we have the group depolarized podcast discussion group where people share stories and ask questions and try and help each other depolarize this very polarized world. Thank you guys so much. 